0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Vicious, vicious vodka.
2: You are listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. I am Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, where you phone in with all of your cooking-related questions. I'm here today with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, and we are back in the United States finally, right? We're... We're done, with, we're done with the majority of our travels? We're good now? I think so. Yeah, okay, good. All right. So call in all your questions live to the studio at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. And uh, today's show is brought to you by 360 Cookware, uh, which uh, it's new, I guess. I'm not familiar with it. Are you familiar with it, No. Nastasha? No. Mm. So 360 Cookware is a, a top-of-the-line stainless steel cookware that is made in America in the greenest cookware manufacturing facility in the country. It can be used to make all of your favorite recipes, but it also gives the option to cook using vapor technology what does that mean
1: i have no idea
2: which creates a seal that surrounds the food with intense heat locking in vitamins moisture and flavor without added oil fat or excess water visit our website at 360 cookware.com for more information uh what do you think that means vapor you think it means they're steaming it that's what it sounds like sounds like it's Mm -hmm. steaming it when i hear vapor technology and cooking in general i think steam Mm -hmm. steam right yeah so what they're saying is that they're steaming it
1: we have a caller.
2: Oh, we have a caller. Yeah. All right. So let's take uh, let's take the caller, and then hopefully someday we'll figure out what three hundred and sixty vapor technology is. Hello, caller. You're on the air.
0: Hey, is that me? Hey. Outstanding. Um, so I had a question for you actually about um, sous vide cooking, okay, and particularly the vacuum packing. Mm-hmm. So uh, Thomas Keller, fairly famously, has his claims that the uh, the home units, the, the food savers, and things like this, manage to remove moisture. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how that's possible compared to one of the very high-end, you know, high you know eight and ten thousand dollar restaurant systems.
2: Right. Okay. Well, you. Can, by the way, at home you can get a, a like a commercial grade one now for I think about fifteen hundred bucks, like a really, really, really nice one. It's small. It's not as big as the commercial one, so you don't have to go spend quite as much money. But I think what he's referring to is. Uh, you know, for those of you out there that have a, a food saver, right, which is the kind of the normal one. There's other manufacturers now, but the kind of the one that's been around the longest is the food saver. When it's sucking a vacuum, you have to use specialized vacuum bags that have little um, crisscross lines in them, right? Right. And that's just what you have? You have the food saver? Yeah. Yeah. And so the the problem with those bags is is that the way that it sucks vacuum is by using those little uh lines as straws and literally sucking the vacuum out of the out of the out of the bag. The problem is is that um Basically, the air is constantly coming out and air pressure is pushing on the bag, which forces liquid into those little straws. So if you let it run, right, it sucks the, the liquid, literally sucks the liquid out of the bag like it's a straw. And that's probably what he's referring to. I don't think he's referring to it drying something out. Right Now, that doesn't happen in a commercial vacuum machine because right, in a commercial vacuum machine, the bag is inside of a chamber and the whole chamber is evacuated. So there's not extra pressure pushing on the outside of the bag while you're sucking the vacuum on the inside. So the liquids tend to stay in the bag. I mean sometimes you can boil them because as you put a vacuum on something, you lower the temperature at which it boils. It can boil out. But if you don't boil it, the liquids are going to stay in the bag because the, there's no air pressure on the bag while you're sucking the vacuum. And that's kind of the key, aside from the fact that a, a, the Food Saver's vacuum pump isn't nearly as strong as a regular vacuum, you know, a real commercial vacuum pump. That's the fundamental difference, and that's why a chamber machine is so useful as compared to a machine that just sucks the vacuum uh, on the bag itself. Does that make make sense?
0: It does. Is there is there a way that you can sort of eyeball it and make sure that you can use something like this? I, I just thought one of these... Um uh um Soviet prose right from uh, from poly science yeah. Um, so I'm sort of tapped out as far as equipment use uh-huh. <laughs> for well, a little here, while. So, here,
2: um, yeah, here's the good news, right? So uh, yeah. I, I have a, had a food saver. It broke, but I almost always used it to seal potato chip bags or if you're going to uh, save something for a long time in the freezer, it's really good. Um, if you have to use a food saver to bag sauces, a lot of people will freeze the sauces first and then put them in as frozen so that it won't get sucked up. But uh, to me, that's kind of a pain in, the, pain in the rear. I tend to do most of my work just using Ziploc bags. Um, um, like a lot of things, like let's say you're going to work with fish, right? If you're going to work with fish, you don't really want to suck a, a hard vacuum on it because it, t- it tends to hurt the texture of the fish, right? It, or it, or even chicken. If you suck a hard vacuum on a chicken, it tends to make it taste more like a canned chicken when it's cooked for some reason. I don't really know the reason why. It's just test after test we've seen this we've seen this happening. So uh, 90% of the time when I'm cooking at home, actually basically 100% unless I'm doing eggs, I put my stuff in Ziploc bags and it's extremely easy to learn the technique to pack very effectively in a ziplock. There's, there's pictures on, on cookingissues.com, but briefly what you do is, is you, you seal the entire bag. You put some liquid in, like usually oil or butter or whatever, or, or a sauce if you're doing something like that. You seal the bag and you leave just – you put your finger in the top where it's not sealed. One section isn't sealed. The rest is sealed. And then you, you uh, um, put the bag underwater. As you put the bag underwater, the water displaces the air. And right before the bag sinks underneath the liquid entirely, you snip the last little bit closed. You press it closed. And – it works great. I mean I wouldn't use it on very, very, very high temps because the, those Ziploc bags aren't meant to get all the way to the boil. But for 90 percent of what you're doing or more, it's a really good technique and doesn't require any sort of uh, equipment. And, and it handles sauces very, very well. So I, I moved quite a long time ago to that kind of a technique at home instead of using uh, instead of using the Food Saver, which makes an excellent potato chip sealer, by the way. Um, I mean I don't know if that's – another thing, if you have the, the – the, the poly science here's one little um one little note I'll give you because, uh, I mean, we, if you're at home, you might not have this problem. But, you know, we've been using the new circulator at the, at the school, at the French Culinary, for quite a while. And under the use of a bunch of people who aren't necessarily trained to use it, one of the main problems we've had with the new unit is people have set the offset, okay? So like if you notice on the new circulator, if you press the button, you can change between Fahrenheit and Celsius. There's a, it, it, but the next thing after that is something called the offset. And I've had a bunch of chefs turn the offset like two and three degrees because they thought they were setting the temperature and then the circulator is off by two or three degrees and it's not that there's anything wrong with the circulator it's just that people have uh it's it's too easy for them to to mess with the offset so if anyone plays around with your circulator make sure they put the offset back uh to zero the best thing to do is to is to put your new circulator into an ice water bath lots of ice and water let it like set it to like minus 10 celsius or something like that just so that it doesn't want to heat the bath let it run for like 10 minutes and then you can see exactly how far off of zero is they're within a half a degree always but you can set the offset then down or up to exactly calibrate it to zero and then it'll be dead dead perfect forever as long as no one messes with the offset is this is this helpful at all or no
0: definitely very much so
2: all right well listen uh thank thanks for calling and uh you know uh Call back any, any time if you want more advice on, on, uh, on bagging. We love, we love bagging. Right, Nastasha? We do. Even you I can did. do it. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, guys. Okay. Um, all right. So we have uh, another question in, and uh, it's from Michael Griffiths, who was actually at the Harold McGee Lecture Series last week. And uh, I was a horribly – or two weeks ago – I was horribly, horribly, horribly sick Like, I don't know. I've never kind of been... It's unlike you. I was... I mean, you know, chills, like, horrible, like... uh, Let me put it this way. Uh, Without getting too graphic, (laughs) right? uh, It turns out that... If you uh, expel everything out of your body for like days and days without being able to take anything in, that you lose some of your, uh, you lose the enzymes, you lose the, uh, you know, the enzymes that allow you to to digest lactose, right? So, uh, you know, I now know, very temporarily, I know what it's like to be lactose intolerant. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it really sucks. (laughs) I'll never make fun of someone for it again because it really sucks, You know Um, Anywho So I was very sick I wasn't at my best During the class In fact I had to leave Uh couple hours early Just because You know The, the shaking sh- Shaking and chills And the You know It was a little much With the, the They had a space heater fired directly underneath me And had me wrapped In like three Three sets of coats So that I, my body Just wasn't regulating temperature It was just a nightmare uh, But unfortunately I didn't get to set up The rotary evaporator And uh, Michael really wanted To see the rotary evaporator And it didn't get set up Because I wasn't there And uh, there was a seal missing And so it was never able To get uh, work properly and I, I apologize Michael If you're ever in the In the neighborhood I owe you a rotary rotovap demo right Nastasha right yeah yeah Yeah. anyway no not your fault I mean like I wasn't there I wasn't available but um, we'll show you how to fire up the rotovap it's it's one of those things where if you if you're not familiar with every single part of the rotary evaporator and for those of you don't know what the heck I'm talking about rotary evaporator is a piece of laboratory equipment that's a vacuum still we're actually demoing one tomorrow on the Martha Stewart show Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll talk more about that later. Um, but uh, you need to know what every single part does. And if if you're just kind of remembering instead of like knowing intimately every part, it's almost impossible to set up properly. But I'll, I'll do it for you if you're ever in the neighborhood. And I happen to be in the neighborhood and firing at the Rotor Vap at the same time. But he has an actual question. Uh, two, actually. One – is about parsnips. So uh, he juices Champion, uh, Parsnips in the Champion uh, juicer. The Champion juicer, for those of you that don't know, it, uh, it's a great little juicer. It doesn't do citrus. It doesn't do wheatgrass, but it's basically got these little teeth that spin and it just you know, m- mashes the juice all the heck, mashes fruit or whatever, vegetables all the heck, and then presses the juice through a screen and then the, the pulp, which is fairly dry, you can run it again if it's not comes out the front. I love the Champion. We juice apples all day long in that thing. We juice carrots in that Thing you know, ginger, horseradish, it'll juice most anything. Um, so uh, he's juicing parsnips in it, and he's taking the juice and he's heating it, and then it's all of a sudden thickening up. And I'm guaranteeing, I'm not guaranteeing, I don't know, but my guess is that the reason it's thickening up is that parsnips actually contain a good bit of starch in them. And so if you're taking the juice and heating it, you're probably functionalizing the starch. This is my guess, and it's thickening up just like uh, just like a starch would. That, I mean, that's just my my guess. This is why you know, the, you know, parsnips contain a lot of starch and to prove it like if you store them for a long time they get sweeter because the starch is being converted to sugar so if you have a parsnip that's not very sweet it's going to have a proportionally higher amount of starch in it and I guess depending on how you're juicing it or how much the, the thing is being broken up by the juicer you're going to get more or less of that starch in the juice I don't know if you're adding the pulp back to it either to to add that but there's definitely going to be some free starch in there um, that is you know, not functionalized until it's been heated and boiled and then it's, it's going to thicken up this is my guess uh, another another question and we'll take this before we go off into into break is he has a question about using agar and marshmallows um, so a, a lot of people actually are interested. And in agar, by the way, is, for those of you that don't know, uh, is my favorite hydrocolloid, my favorite kind of gelling agent. I love agar because it's easily available. It's you know completely natural, been used for like a bazillion years, and it's extremely versatile. I love it. Uh, in fact, we're teaching a class where I'm going to do a whole bunch of agar tricks this Thursday and Friday. We're doing yeah. hyd- hydrocolloids at the at the FCI. Uh, so. Um, Anyway, so the holy grail for a lot of people are vegetarian marshmallows. And um, and so typically the marshmallow will be made with gelatin or a mixture of gelatin egg white to provide the foaming, the gelatin sets, and that provides the structure for the marshmallow. And so his question is, is uh, substituting agar in instead of gelatin? And I would not – uh, do that. I would not use agar. Agar um agar is very porous and uh, tends to have a lot of sinteresis, a lot of a lot of weeping in it. Typically, people use uh, mixtures of carrageenan, which is a similar gelling agent, and. Uh, and locust bean gum, which provide so when you take carrageenan, kappa carrageenan. There's a bunch of different kinds. When you take kappa carrageenan, which is very brittle, right? But also, you know, is, forms a good structure. And then you mix it with locust bean gum, another you know uh, classic, you know, all natural. It's from a seed, uh, and and you mix that. The locust bean gum softens the carrageenan and makes it somewhat gelatin-like. And so there's very specific mixtures of. Um, of uh, kappa carrageenan and possibly other types of carrageenan and locust bean gum that are manufactured specifically to make uh, marshmallows. Um, And they're made by the CP Kelco Corporation. That's CP... K-E-L-C-O, and uh, one that they make specifically for marshmallows is Genutine, G- uh, G-E-N-U-T-I-N-E, Genutine X9303, and I believe it's available through La Sanctuaire's website or La Sanctuaire's website out in California, and if not, you could contact CP Calco directly and find a source for it, but that is a special carrageenan mix that's made to function just like gelatin in a marshmallow, and it should whip up without uh, any problems if you go into the hydrocolloid primer section of the uh, of our blog Cooking Issues there's a little discussion that people have done on vegetarian marshmallows it might also be of help anyway hope this was helpful we'll go out to the first commercial break call in your questions to 718-497-2128 that's 718-497-2128 Cooking Issues
3: oh, How you feel brother? Feeling good You feel good? good, good. You so much bone brother How you feel man? I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, Bella?
2: Listening to cooking issues on the Heritage Radio Network. Call in all of your cooking related questions, technical or not, to 718 497 2128. That's 718 497 2128. We're going to be here for another segment or so, so you still have time to call. Um, Okay, so uh, here's a question. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I waxed rhapsodic apparently about the wonders of fresh tofu. Uh, and uh, Derek has made it himself, but he encountered two big problems. When he's heating the ground soybeans to make soy milk, the mixture foams up an absurd amount. Uh, and containing the mess was problematic. You know, I too have this problem uh, at home absurd messes, but for many, many reasons, not just for making tofu. Uh, cooking in small batches made it more manageable, but also more time consuming. Any tricks for controlling the foaming? All right, well, uh, I think I said, mentioned this before, the book to get. On tofu is uh, the book of Tofu uh, by William uh Shirtleff and Akiko uh, I I I can't pronounce her name very properly, but uh, I uh, how do you pronounce I don't know. I'm terrible at pronunciation. I'm just such a jerk, such a moron. Anyway, <laughs> I happen to have it in front of me because I was rereading it and trying to figure out all your problems. I think I found out your problem. Uh, when you're making – here's the process of tofu. For those of you that don't that don't know making tofu, you need to go – first of all, go make your own tofu. Uh, if you want like a, a highly, highly technical tofu source actually, Nathan Mirvold's book when it's coming out, Nathan Mirvold and Chris Young, the, the Uber tech book that's coming out uh, very soon, like the, the tech book to end all tech books, has a huge – section on tofu and also on uh tofu like curds from other things like from peanuts uh i believe from edamame and from from any of these things so that, that that's get, like when that comes out that's going to be the revolutionary tofu tofu curd to, to end all tofu curd like books i think but uh in the meantime I will, I will tell you this so what you do is you take uh soybeans right you know hopefully relatively good quality soybeans that aren't too too old you want to soak them for eight to ten hours, you break them open. You look at the inside to verify that they've soaked through but haven't over-soaked, right? It, you, I usually use about a, a cup and a half, which is what uh, you know, the Shirt Lift book recommends. Then uh, you're going to blend those with, with very hot water in a blender, right? Then you're going to add that to more water and heat it. Right. Until it just gets to the boil. You're not going to boil it with all the pulp in it. Then you're going to, uh, pour out that, you know, you're going to get a sack like cloth. Then you're going to pour the, that entire mix. It's got the, it's got the, you know, the pulp and the, and the soy milk into a sack and press it out then you're going to remoisten the you know the stuff that's left over which is called okara that's like the hulls and the solids right remix that with some more hot water bring it up to a boil and then and then pour it pour it back out again to get the 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 soy milk out and then then you boil the milk uh, to kill, you know, kill all the the enzymes in it to prevent you from uh, from using all the, all the protein. If you try and boil it with the with the actual okara in it, with the pulp in it, I think you're going to have horrible boiling mess problems. You're probably going to get uh, okara, you know, boiled and stuck onto the bottom of your pot. It's going to be a king hell mess. So uh, what I typically do is a little bit different from what they do in the because in the book they're very concerned about energy consumption, which is smart because this guy is very very concerned about all this kind of stuff. But in general, I have about seven and a half cups of. Water water that you bring uh, you know, you keep it hot it's basically almost at the boil and then you have uh, another pot with uh, another like eight cups of water boiling in it and it's just gonna sit there and boil and so what you'll do is you'll take uh, you'll take like a half of the soybeans that you're gonna have soaked if you start with a cup and a half it'll increase slightly after it soaks and you blend that with two cups of water out of the out of the boiling water pot blend the hell out of it hopefully in a vita prep then pour it into the Pot with seven and a half cups. Then blend another batch of uh, soybeans with two cups water. Pour pour it in. Take like a half cup of that boiling water. Rinse out your blender pour it in, right? Bring that whole thing to uh, a boil, then drain it off, press out the okara, mix another three cups of the boiling water that you have left over with the okara to get the rest out, squeeze it again, and then you have about a cup left over to use with your solidifier. Now, uh, he also had problems. He was using nigari. Nigari is the traditional Japanese solidifier that's used and it's basically a derivative of seawater. It's not the, the sodium part. They'll take the sodium chloride off uh, off the seawater and then all the other calcium and magnesium salts that are left over and it, you make the the nigari out of and you can buy nigari a bunch of different ways you can buy it as a liquid you can buy it as a solid I have to say this I have not had that good luck with uh, nigari myself Um, I I would say you'd probably I don't know what you're using but in our in the batch size that I do which starts with a cup and a half of soybeans and ends up with about 15 um, you know 15 cups of water added to it um, we end up they recommend using like two and a half uh, to four teaspoons of the nigari, depending on whether you're using the solid or, or the liquid. But I use Epsom salts, which I really like, even though apparently I'm a Philistine jerk, like moron for liking Epsom salts. But you can just go into Dwayne Reed or CVS or whatever, buy Epsom salts. Don't use too much of it because it's a laxative. I use about two teaspoons of Epsom salts. Epsom salt is uh, magnesium sulfate. It's awesome stuff. You can also use calcium chloride which all of you hydrocolloid fans probably have sitting around even though it tastes horrible it's not going to be that noticeable in the in the final batch i would use also about 2 teaspoons of that or 2 teaspoons of magnesium chloride which isn't going to taste nearly as bad as the calcium chloride um and you can use any one of those things i've really had no luck using acid to make it but other people other people have and you're going to want to put it in in several stages, you stir some in, and then you pour some over the top and let it sit, and it takes minutes for the curd to form. Another thing you're going to want to do is when you're getting the curds, you're going to want to press down on them and get the way out. Don't try to agitate it too much, you're going to break the curds up into tiny things, and it's going to be a nightmare, and all hell's going to break loose. Uh, So anyway, so I hope that... Does that sound helpful, or does that sound... Yeah, wait, I have a question. Okay.
1: My mom buys tofu, and my dad won't eat it, because he's like a meat and potatoes kind of guy, so... What's yeah. the best recipe you have with tofu?
2: Well, that's interesting. When I make my own tofu, I tend to just want to eat it because you put a lot of work into it and it's delicious. I, I, I hate the idea of taking tofu and making it into some fake other crap. You know what I mean? The problem with most tofu that you buy, unless you're going to a, like a, like a high-quality tofu shop where they're making their tofu every day, is that the tofu has been soaked in uh, so much water. It's sitting there in water that all of the actual flavor of the soybean has been leached out of it, and it's basically worthless you know when you're making your own tofu you have i'm uh, I'm not gonna offend anyone here i mean mean it's worthless you know what i mean it's just it's not for me like i never use it i never buy it like i like making tofu and using it but i never buy it when you make it yourself you can you can use like you can keep it like a cloud tofu which is not pressed at all which is amazing in soups a lot of korean soups uh done that way it's delicious you know what i mean you can make a, a very soft tofu you can make a firmer tofu you can mix stuff into the tofu and set it but for me the main key is that you haven't completely gotten rid of all the, the original whey that's in there and there's no extra added flavorless water that's leached out what flavor it has because tofu has a really delicate, amazing flavor when it's used, when it's when it's made fresh and it's used just as is. And I literally, like, I can't, I, I never have enough to use in recipes because I'm always just, you know, cutting it and then eating it with, like, a, an amazing dipping sauce. But, you know, if you're going to buy tofu, you know, i fry the hell out of it. <laughs> okay. That's going to help. You know what I mean? That's going to help, you know. I, I don't know. Like I'll uh, see if
1: she can make it.
2: Excuse yeah, me. making tofu is amazing and, and it shows you it shows you kind of what you can do. I mean, it's really it I just don't I, mean, I just don't much like the tofu that you buy in the store like I just can't. I mean, I can eat it when it's, you know, chopped up and put into things, mm-hmm. but I'm never like, "Wow, you know, store-bought tofu, that's amazing. <laughs> okay, we can't wait to have another thing of uh, store-bought tofu." You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Dan from Seattle writes in and says, Hello, I'm a fairly serious amateur cook. After enough media horror stories, I've started grinding my own meat uh, essentially all the time for any recipe that calls for ground beef. You have uh, you have great, uh, you know, stick-to-itiveness and patience. Thing, cause that's kind of a pain in the butt to haul out your mm-hmm. meat grinder every time you're going to make meat. I have one problem on a relatively frequent basis. I get small bone chips even after very thorough trimming. Is there any systematic way to avoid this? Okay. Uh, first of all, notes on notes on meat. Uh, when you're grinding your own meat, obviously you want to make sure that the cutters are sharp. I don't know whether you're using a hand grinder or the KitchenAid attachment, right? But you want to make sure the cutters stay sharp. Otherwise, you're going to be pasting out and uh, and hurting, you know, bas- basically pasting out the fat and overheating it when it's going in. Another thing is you're going to want to cut any kind of uh, sinew or anything you don't want to eat out in general because it's not going to be pleasant and sometimes it can get stuck in the grinder as it goes through. So that's that's also bad third when you're grinding meat you're going to want to and i haven't answered the question yet i realize that third when you're grinding uh meat you're going to want to almost par freeze it right so that uh so that the the texture stays good when it freezes through you want to like not frozen solid but basically where it just starts to feel stiff and almost got a little bit of a crunch on the outside where it starts to freeze no freeze it harder than that you feed it through you're going to have much better uh results straight off the bat right now some people pass it through twice it really depends on the technique you're using what kind of texture you want whether you need to pass it through once or twice but those are the basics of it i think the main problem people have and i know you say you're doing a thorough trimming is uh not trimming the the meat properly if you're putting uh just big chunks of meat in and and the sinews going in and cartilage is going in you're not going to have a, a good product so i think trimming it Uh, before you grind it is the most important thing you can do trim it into the pieces then put those pieces on a sheet tray put them in the freezer par freeze them then grind them that's the way to get good results also remember please make sure to thoroughly clean your sanitize your meat grinder so that nothing gets in there because you know otherwise you're introducing the same problems that you could get in commercially ground meat now as for bones I'm if, the best, if you're buying meat that was cut on a bandsaw, right? So like you're buying like just chunks of beef that were cut on a bandsaw and then trimming, there's always the possibility because I don't know what cut of meat you're using, right? But there's always the possibility that you'll get a little piece of like chine bone or something in there that's very hard to see. Now, you could – when you trim, trim the pieces before you grind them and before you uh, freeze them down to, to grind them, if you trim all the pieces down and feel all over them, you know, just rub your fingers all around them, you'll be able to feel if there's any sort of, any sort of chips. But one way to do it is to buy, if you're buying whole muscle cuts, right, like whole pieces to, to grind and then trimming them into the, into the pieces yourself before you grind them, that's the way to avoid a, a, a lot of bones because you can see if someone's cut through, for instance, like the spine or something like that. Or you see, like a lot of bone things, you can see the entire structure of the bone, and it's going to be a lot easier to cut all of those pieces out and trim down than it's going to be if someone just takes meat and puts it in a bandsaw, and, and it's hard to tell what the bone structure and the muscle structure is, right? So, that's the first uh, thing to do, and it also gives you like a real sense for the quality of the meat that you're using because you're going to be chopping it into strips yourself. Because um, I, because I, I, that's when I grind, that's typically what I'm doing, and I don't have problems with bone chips, so I'm assuming. I just, I'm just assuming that you're buying Pre-cut mie- uh, like stew meat That's been like put through uh, a bandsaw And that's always there's always a slight chance That someone's going to get a bone chip in What do you think, Nastasha? I think that's a good answer, Dave yeah, we have yeah. to take a break Oh, alright, so uh, going on to our second break Call your questions in to 718-497-2128 That's 718-497-2128 uh, Cooking Issues
3: yeah, yeah. You know what? When I hear a groove like this groove Yeah, yeah, like way of young man Ah, it's bang <laughs> Look at him, Somebody got a groove like this You know
2: To Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, call in all of your cooking-related questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. So, uh, so Nastasha, tomorrow's a big day. We're going to be on uh, you're Martha. You're going to be on the Martha
1: Stewart
2: show. Well, someone's going to need to run the of app while I'm talking to her, right? No. Huh?
1: No, you're doing it legally.
2: Yeah, but we need, someone needs to run it. Someone physically needs to run the machine while I'm there. Uh, for people out there who are thinking of getting a app, it does not run itself, folks. The machine does not run itself. And we're doing a live segment tomorrow, which is going to include – we're going to carbonate. We're going to be doing a, a gin and tonic where we're – actually, it's pretty cool. Uh, we're going to take a – so for those of you out there that have access to liquid nitrogen, kudos to you. If not, get yourself access to liquid nitrogen. It's an amazing, amazing material. So we're going to take uh, we're going to take blood oranges because Nastasha's is fascinated with blood oranges. <laughs> and we're going to do uh, – uh, use uh, an enzyme, Pectinex SPL, our favorite miracle enzyme, and we're going to chemically suprem the the, uh, the the blood oranges. And the reason to do that is because. Supreming, by the way, for those of you that aren't hip hip to the fact, right? So, with well, the way su- supreming is basically where you you cut the peel off and then you and then you slice it. So you don't. You only have the little little vesicles, little pips. You don't have any of the uh, any of the uh, what's it called? The, the membrane. Oh. yeah, the membrane in there, right? So that's supreming, right? Problem with supreming a blood orange is if you suprem a blood orange, they're going to leak everywhere, and we don't want any leakage because we don't want the we want the drink to stay perfectly clear. We don't want any blood orange juice leaking out of the thing, so we're not going to suprem them. Normally, we're going to use Pectinex SPL, our favorite uh, uh, pectin uh, lyase slash hemicellulose uh, breaking down enzyme. That's the same one we use to make French fries. It's the same one we use when we're clarifying any, any damn fruit juice, right? We, mm-hmm. just, we, we go through SPL like the end of the world is coming, and you can buy it from Uh Yes or no?
1: Yeah, we have a little bit left.
2: Well, we have to get more. I mean, yeah. we use that stuff all the time. Anyway, it's a miracle enzyme. The guys at Novazymes who make it, they admit that it's a miracle enzyme. Pectinex SPL. Anyway, so uh, we're going to take uh, Pectinex SPL and chemically suprem it so that we don't have to. We can get rid of all the membranes without actually touching, uh, you know, with a knife the uh, the blood orange, and then we're going to put that in liquid nitrogen and freeze it solid. And what what happens there is. Is that uh, when you freeze uh, citrus in liquid nitrogen and then really hard, and then you hit it with a rolling pin, uh, all the little juice vesicles, little pips break apart. Uh, and they stay whole. and They're not broken. And then you can use them li- uh, as a garnish, which is what we're going to do. So we're basically going to pour a gin and tonic over a bunch of these uh, frozen blood orange things. And we tried it yesterday. It's pretty, it's pretty darn cool. It's pretty, pretty good looking. It it's tastes gorgeous. good. And uh, Don Lee, a uh, bartender friend of ours, Don Lee, suggested we call it gin sack sack after the Korean sack sack pulpy drink. Zack, sack. Anyway, <laughs> so we're going to do that. We're going to run the Rotary Evaporator uh, live, which we've never done it live before, have we? For a live show? Yeah, for Jimmy well, Fallon. Well, Jimmy Fallon was pre- t- pre-recorded. We ran oh, it like it was live, yeah. but it was pre-recorded. So anyway, uh, so uh, we'll get to have the fun of running a Rotary Evaporator. I think we're going to do – we normally do scotch and peanuts. But we're going to do bourbon and peanuts because our good folks at Maker's Mark sent us a whole bunch of Maker's Mark, and that's what we're going to use. Uh, so what else are we doing on that show, Stas?
1: And I think the ISI – Trick.
2: Oh yeah, we're going to do some uh, ISI infusion with cocoa nibs. Uh, at least this is what I think. We'll, we'll see whether they Paris down. But anyway, that's what that's what we're going to work on. Speaking of Paris, I know I spoke <laughs> about this before. I don't want to get too into it because I know I've spoken about it before. I don't want to bore the hell out of you guys. But this, I have a, uh, 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 I need help on this. The t- obviously the two pears that Nastasha and I tasted that were like. Damn, I need that pear, right? Damn! One was Narun Barun, N-A-R-U-N-B-A-R-U-N, right? It's in the list of stuff at the Brogdale, which is the miracle fruit collection in Kent that Nastasha and I visited a couple weeks ago. Narun Barun is the pear that uh, it eats like a pear, it's juicy like a pear, it has no astringency whatsoever, and has the aroma and taste of a quince. It's a miracle pear. Sucker is a miracle. However, it is nowhere else to be found. I could not find any other collections that have it. I couldn't find any references to it. If anyone out there, and we've gotten in touch with uh, the Agricultural Extension, uh, the the Germplasm Library for pears in the U.S., which is in Corvallis, Oregon. We haven't heard back from them yet. But if any of you have any knowledge of this pear or of any other pear that tastes like uh, and smells like a quince but has no astringency, please get in touch with us because I'm desperately seeking this. It's a miracle pear. Hey, Dave, how do you spell it? N-A-R-U-N, new word b a r u n narun barun uh it, it, I think it's derived from Turkish meaning like like awesome scent or something like that I think it in Turk in Turkish I think it means like awesome scent or graceful scent or something like that mm-hmm. the other pair that we can't seem to find that was delicious was uh Nimrod and I know it sounds like you know like like a moron like Nimrod but it was right there on the thing and we'll put pictures on because I'm going to put the pear post up soon God willing uh but Nimrod tasted like c- candy the pair. T- Tasted like candy. So we want anyone to find these. Am I correct? We want anyone to find these pears. Help us find these pears. Please help us find these pears. Um, (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Okay. So uh, also – uh we, we're working on a, a, a new project, one that we've actually been working on before that we're extremely, extremely excited about, and it's not technically uh, technical related at all. We tried to make it technically related, but it, we couldn't, no. is uh, Dragon's Beard Candy. So for those of you out there who uh, don't know anything about Dragon's Beard Candy, um, what, you, what you're basically doing is it's hand-pulled cotton candy, right and so uh, what you do is is you cook uh, a mixture of sugar technically they would use maltose uh, the the Chinese recipes I've seen use maltose but you can just use a little bit of corn syrup so like I think we did like a kilo of sugar and like uh, 100 or 200 grams of corn syrup uh, like a teaspoon of vinegar which helps invert the sugar even more so that you're not going to get too much crystallization problems water you cook the whole thing up to about 133 Celsius right pull it off at like 132 it's going to rise up Uh, and then you let it cool down you set it into kind of hockey puck shapes right then after it sets into a hockey puck shape hard you nuke it for like 10 seconds to make it pliable again and then you form it into a donut and then as you after you form it into a donut you pull it uh, in your hands, keeping it very even, and you keep dredging it in. Uh, we used cornstarch, you can use rice flour, we used cornstarch. You keep dredging it in this and then flipping it as a figure eight. And and basically, every time you flip it a figure eight and put it back into a circle again and keep pulling it, you're doubling the number of strands. So we do this like, like 13, uh, 14 times, which is like, you know, 2 to the 13th, so we're talking thousands of, of stre- threads by the time you're done, hence dragon spear because it looks like little like threads of, of candy. The stuff is amazing. The stuff is awesome. It's got an, a fantastic texture. It's totally different from, from cotton candy. The trick is, and we're going to put it up on the blog, the trick is pulling it the right way. And so you can look on uh, – vid- there's videos on the web. A guy named uh, Peter Pang – I'm not making that up. Peter Pang, P-A-N-G, has a uh, um, – and it's his recipe that we use basically. He has a, a thing where you can see it. And there's a bunch of things if you look up Dragon beard on the internet that you can see uh, people doing this but they don't really tell you the key here's the key to it to do it, to do it right is basically the front hand and you'll have to look on the on the website but the front hand holds still the back hand uh, pulls the candy and then you, rev- you reverse, grip it again and pull it. And that's the, that's the trick. If you really – whenever – this is any chef, by the way. It's not just with dragon's beard. I almost always ignore everything that a chef is saying because a lot of times it's wrong. Mm. And I've spent all of my time focusing on their hands. Like how how are their hands connected to the food? How is their hand connected to the knife? Like for instance, like learning soba. I was at a soba class. Well, soba is you know, buckwheat noodles. And I was uh, at a soba class once. And everyone was looking at the chef's face... And While the chef was sitting there cutting the, the noodles by hand Because he cut the silver noodles with hand with a special knife Useless Well, you're going to look at the guy's face The guy's face doesn't cut noodles You know what I mean? Yeah. The guy's hand cuts noodles So you want to sit there and like, watch, watch the dude's hand And that's how you learn anything It's the same thing with the dragon's beard The only way that we were able to get somewhat proficient Is not by the instructions that are on the web Because they're basically useless it's, it's watching their hands and seeing what's happening And uh, then practicing Now That's the good that's news That's a good tip that's a good tip, right? Mm-hmm. The the bad news is is that we, that you know, I kind of like my job is a tech guy, right? The FCI, so I figured we're gonna tech it up. So I was like, we're not gonna use rice flour or cornstarch or any stupid cra- Oh by the way, I also spray it with a little pam before I start, so I'm cheating, so you know, don't tell anyone It's but, kinda technical. Yeah, it's kinda technical. <laughs> yeah, right, there you go. Pam, boom, tech. Anyway, so no. So we were like, okay, we're gonna use well, we tried tapioca and zorbit. Enzorbit N. By the way, when you ask for tapioca maltodextrin and you want to make a powder out of an oil, I, I, mean, I don't know how many times I've said this to people. Do not say just tapioca maltodextrin. Say Ensorbit uh, M, I think. Uh, tapioca maltodextrin from the National Starch Corporation because no other – Tapioca maltodextrin will make a powder out of an oil. Anyway, that said, I said a million times, yet yeah, it still happens. Anyway, whatever. So uh, we tried to mix a uh, flavorful oil with tapioca maltodextrin, then cut it with cornstarch, and the texture wasn't as good. Right,
3: right.
2: Texture's no good. Right. And then we tried. This is oh, I had such high hopes for this. We we bought almond flour, which was delicious uh, in Chinatown. It had it had almond and a little bit of bitter almond in it, so it tasted like an amaretto cookie. Mm-hmm. The flour did. It was great stuff by itself. We then bought like some really expensive uh, freeze dried raspberries and blended them with the uh, almond flour to make a powder put it through a sieve so it was nice and fine and then we dragged the uh the dragon's beard as we were making it instead of through cornstarch through that stuff and it looked amazing it tasted amazing texture sucked texture was terrible it was not nearly as good right right yeah yeah it's kind of unfortunate so if any of you guys out there have a uh some sort of technique to to do this and to tech it up, then I can start demoing it like up, down, left, and right because that stuff is super, super delicious. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, on my way out, I'm going to make a list. This is why people can keep me honest, right? Of what posts we're supposed to be working on on the blog. Right. Well,
1: and also people who want to come to the hydrocolloids class. Can they still sign up? No, no. uh, We have a hydrocolloids
2: class uh, on uh, this Thursday and Friday, but it's already totally full because it's maxed out at at 17. Well, kind (laughs) of. Yeah. Yeah. It's maxed (laughs) out at 17, so you have to sign up up for the next one. So, uh, here are the posts that I'm going to pretend that I'm doing very soon, (laughs) but we need to get it done. By the way, so... uh, We've done a lot of tests recently on kombu. Kombu is delicious. Someone's got to keep me honest. We've done a lot, a lot of interesting work with uh, kombu. Our good friend Yuji uh, Haraguchi at uh, at True World Foods, our Japanese uh, mega supplier, sent us some amazing kombu. We tasted it from the top, from the bottom, from the center, different concentrations. So it's really building on our old post on kombu, which you can check out. I love myself some kombu. We've got to obviously do the pear post. Yeah. Someday I have to get back and finish those low temperature Yeah cooking things right Mm -hmm. but the most recent post we have out is on country ham and I encourage you to go read it Uh, I love American country ham Uh, one of our sponsors actually of our show is S. Wallace Edwards who makes one of the finest country hams uh, here in the United States Uh, which one did we have last night uh, we had from Finchville Farms. Finchville Farms is a manufacturer in Kentucky uh, that was actually just bought recently, uh, a couple of years ago, by someone, but who's kept all the old techniques that the Robertsons uh, use, and the Robertsons are still there, uh, you know, curing country hams. But uh, I encourage everyone to buy more American country ham, and just please, please do not. Well, you can cook it if you have to. Don't overcook a country ham. And better yet, don't cook it at all. Slice it on a meat slicer and serve it like prosciutto. So. Uh, go eat your country ham. Try out S. Wallace Edwards. Try out uh, Finchville Farms. Try out Colonel Newsom's out of Kentucky. Try Alan Benton out of uh, out of Tennessee. Try uh, Burger Smokehouse, which makes a bunch of commodity hams. Also makes a really delicious uh, attic aged one, which is their special one. They're out of Missouri. What do you say? Heritage. Her- <laughs> what heritage? They don't make a country ham.
1: Oh, we'll just eat their ham.
2: Yeah, ham is look, – look, a fresh ham is a fresh, is a fresh ham, right? Like God wants hams to be cured. He especially wants them to be cured into country hams and or dry cured uh, hams. Like this is like – like if a pig is going to die, right? You're going to kill a pig, right? Pigs are smart. Uh, they're friendly. They're amazing creatures. You're going to kill this pig because it's so delicious. Like you owe it to the pig – to make the the ham into a dry cured country ham, seriously, like it's like the height of what can happen to uh, a, a pig in terms of meat. It's the height of what can happen. I mean, um, anyway, that's my feeling about it. Uh, thank you. This has been Cooking Issues, and we'll see you again next week.
1: You've been listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. And today at 3pm There will be a live episode Of The Food Scene On HeritageRadioNetwork.com Ian Nower spent nearly a decade Cooking in Gourmet's te- Test Kitchen Catered for In a Garden And the Barefoot Contessa herself And now is writing a cookbook For Houghton Mifflin Based on being a big city country boy. Again, tune into the food scene on Heritage Radio Network.com every Tuesday at 3 p.m. And right now we're running a promotion where you, the listener, can win five Porterhouse Pork Shops. All you need to do is send me an email at info at Heritage Radio Network.com or follow us on Twitter at H R N HRNUpdates. Send me a message. The first person to contact me with the code word bib salad will win five porterhouse pork chops from heritage foods usa again you've been listening to the heritage radio network thanks for tuning in now when my baby sees me she's gonna bust my head right in